Let's take our Bibles once again and return this morning to the book of Leviticus. We come to Leviticus chapter 7, verses 1 through 10 this morning. Leviticus chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Now this is the law of the guilt offering. It is most holy. In the place where they slay the burnt offering, there they are to slay the guilt offering. And he shall sprinkle its blood around on the altar. Then he shall offer from it all its fat, the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, which is on the loins, and the lobe on the liver he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall offer them up in smoke on the altar as an offering by fire to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The guilt offering is like the sin offering. There is one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. Also, the priest who presents any man's burnt offering, that priest shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering which he has presented. Likewise, every grain offering that is baked in the oven and everything prepared in a pan or on a griddle shall belong to the priest who presents it. Every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall belong to all the sons of Aaron, to all alike. Father, this is your word, and you have promised that it is profitable, and we want to know how. And so, Father, it is our desire that as we turn to Your Word this morning, You would be our help. You have given Your Spirit the ministry of illuminating Your Word. You have given us life so that we might understand spiritual things. We need Your help this morning. And so we rest, Father, in Your promises Accomplish what you will. This we ask in the name of our Savior, the Word incarnate, Jesus Christ. Amen. As I'm reading that passage this morning, you may be thinking to yourself, haven't we already read this? It seems very similar to things that we have already covered again and again. And there's a good reason for that, because that's true. It is very similar. And that, in fact, is one of the primary things we want to talk about this morning. Why so much repetition? Before we do that, let me just go back and summarize a bit. As we've been making our way through the book of Leviticus, you'll remember back in Leviticus chapter 1, we 
studied there the burnt offering. We saw that the burnt offering is an offering that is entirely consumed by fire. And when we studied Leviticus 1, we saw that that offering taught us about the proper worship of God according to His own commands, according to His own promises, as opposed to worship according to our own preferences. God is clearly concerned about how we worship Him. One reason we know this to be true is because of everything we've been seeing in Leviticus. He takes a very long time setting before His people the proper ways in which He is to be worshipped. God's concerned about His worship. How is He to be approached? What is our attitude to be when we approach Him? We also said as we looked at chapter 1 that this burnt offering highlighted the principle of communion with God and how communion with God requires atonement. Atonement, we saw there, is necessary because all those who come to God in order to worship Him are sinners. That's our default position as we come before God. And so if we're going to commune with the Holy God, there must be this provision of atonement in order to open the way for sinners to come before a holy God. Then in chapter 2, we saw the grain offering, also called the dedication offering. And this, this was a symbolic uh, offering. Uh, uh, it was symbolic of the worshiper giving himself wholly and completely to the Lord. The worshiper would bring his grain, cooked or uncooked, as an indication of his need for God's provision of his daily bread, and he would then give back this portion of that provision. And in doing this, he was not only acknowledging that the Lord provides for him, but he also did it as a testimony, as a dedication, as a pledge, proclaiming in this offering that God, as God has provided for the worshiper, the worshiper himself in his entire being belongs to God. And he's willingly giving himself to the Lord in worship. In chapter 3, we saw recorded there the fellowship offering, or the offering of reconciliation. And as we examined the fellowship offering, we saw that like its New Testament counterpart in the Lord's Supper, it was a meal that the worshiper shares with the living God. The living God invites the worshiper who comes to make this fellowship offering to share fellowship with Him, to break bread, to share a meal with God Himself. It's an offering which points forward to the New Testament glories of the Lord's Supper. And then in chapters 4 and 5, we saw instructions regarding unintentional sin. And the offerings which God has 
provided for unintentional sin. We saw saw this in chapter 4 through to the 13th verse of chapter 5, and we saw there the seriousness with which God takes sin. That even if sin is unintentional, it still has to be dealt with. God just doesn't wave His hand and say it really doesn't matter. It's not that important. And then the rest of chapter 5 through chapter 6, verse 7, we saw the guilt offering or the reparation offering, and we're coming back to that offering today. But once again, we're going to see this offering, which has already been dealt with once, now dealt with again, but from a different perspective. This time, instead of seeing this offering from the perspective of the worshiper, we're going to see it from the perspective of the priests. And that's the pattern that we've been seeing through these first chapters of Leviticus. This has been the pattern all the way through to chapter 6. We saw the offerings from the perspective of the worshiper, the one who brings the offering to the tabernacle. And then beginning in chapter 6, verse 8, we started repeating each of those great sacrifices, but seeing them from the perspective of the priest. What are his responsibilities? What are his prerogatives? We've looked a second time at the burnt offering, and we saw there that the demand that the priest keep the fire continuously burning reminded the Old Testament believer of the ongoing need for provision for atonement. And then we looked a second time at the grain offering. And here we saw God's instruction regarding what was to be done with the priest's portion of the grain offering. We saw that the portion of the sacrifice which was to be consumed by the priest was not so much part of the priestly paycheck, if you will, as it was a source of assurance for the worshiper. When the priest would take that portion which was given to him to eat, he was not to take that home, he was not to share that with his family, he was to eat it there at the tabernacle, in the courtyard, publicly, so those who had brought the offering could see him doing it and know that their offering had been offered and accepted. In this way, the people would have assurance that God had accepted them as well. And then finally, the last time we were together in Leviticus, we looked at the sin offering or the purification offering. And we saw this in chapter 6, verses 24 through 30. That sacrifice pointed to the people's need for forgiveness as well as their need to know that the Lord had forgiven them. And that brings us to our passage this morning in chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. Now we're going to work through this passage as we usually do, but let me ask you to look at a few things with me first. First of all, notice what what amounts to the title of this section. You see it there in verse 1. Now this is the law of the guilt offering. And note that as you begin to read about this guilt offering, it is emphasized three times that it is holy. 
At the end of verse 1, it is most holy. At the end of verse 6, it is most holy. It is most holy. Again and again and again, it is to be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. I think there's an emphasis here on the holiness of the sacrifice. Notice in verse 2 how the guilt offering is to be offered in the same place as the burnt offering. In the place where they slay the burnt offering, they are to slay the guilt offering. There's a connection to be made there. There's a reason why it's to be done in the same place. And then notice in verse 7 how the guilt offering is like the sin offering. There is one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. So the priest has the right to a portion of this offering. And that fact is emphasized four times in verses 7 through 10 alone. Look at the end of verse 7. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. The end of verse 8. The priest shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering which he has presented. The end of verse 9. Everything prepared in a pan or griddle shall belong to the priest who presents it. The end of verse 10. Every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall belong to all the sons of Aaron, to all alike. And so it's emphasized again and again and again and again that a portion of this offering belongs to the priest who is offering the sacrifice. Now, Given those words of explanation, let's look through this passage together. The passage really divides into two parts. You'll notice them in verses 1 through 5, and then verses 6 through 8. Verses 1 through 5 cover the priestly actions which were to be done by those offering the sacrifices, those officiating, I should say, over the sacrifices. These are actions which were designed to assure the worshiper. The spreading of the blood on the altar, the burning and the lifting up of the smoke, all of these actions were designed to assure the worshiper. And so verses 1-5 through remind the priest again of his responsibility, his role in giving assurance to God's people. And then in verses 6-10, through we see the rights of those officiating priests to parts of the animal which is being sacrificed. But it's important for us to remember the context of this offering. The one bringing the offering, a guilt offering or a reparation offering, would have been someone who needed to do so. He needed to make reparation for some sin. He needed to make some kind of restitution. That sin might not be known to anyone else but the one against whom that sin was committed. It might have been a case of financially defrauding another person or perhaps defaming a person in some way. And the worshiper would come having been brought under conviction of sin. There would be no other reason to do this 
unless conviction had come. Perhaps the very priest now officiating over his sacrifice had counseled him. Perhaps it was that counsel that brought about the conviction of sin. And then having come under conviction, perhaps it was that same priest who pressed home upon him the obligation to live in accordance with God's law and to go and to offer this very sacrifice. See, we need to understand when we read about these sacrifices, we're reading them words on a page. But there are real life situations behind these sacrifices. There are living, breathing people bringing the sacrifices to the priest. There is conversation going on. There is a spiritual dynamic taking place in the hearts of individuals. There is ministry happening between priest and worshiper. The same things that you and I have experienced in our lives, in our relationship with God, in our relationship with one another, those things aren't unique to us. Every one of us We all have our own stories. How did we come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ? When was it that I came to recognize my sin and to grieve over it? What brought about this conviction? What does that conviction feel like? When I am brought still face to face with my sin and recognize how I have offended a holy God who loves me. Those experiences are not unique. They take place every day among the people of God and they have since the fall. And so when we come to Leviticus, It's important for us to put flesh and bone on what we're seeing here. These worshipers are real people. Coming under the conviction of sin and needing to deal with it in the way that God had directed. These priests are real people. Sometimes very fallible. Sometimes very sinful. Sometimes the priest himself doesn't even know the true God. But there are others. There are godly priests who desire that the people to whom they're ministering might come to be reconciled to God and possess that assurance which God provides. And so as we're reading about this sacrifice, we need to understand what's going on in flesh and blood. So this worshiper 
who has come under the conviction of sin, is bringing a sacrifice because he understands that he has sinned not only against another human being, but he has sinned against God. And there needs to be reconciliation. And there needs to be reparation. It would not have been much different than Jesus on the, in the Sermon on the Mount saying that if you're on your way to the temple to worship and you remember that your brother has something against you, first go be reconciled to your brother. Then come to the temple to worship. See, Jesus takes these same principles and He puts flesh and blood on them. Perhaps the priest has pressed home the obligations of God's Word upon this worshiper then. And this worshiper has become convicted of sin. And of his own voluntary, spontaneous response, he comes and says to the priest, I need to offer a guilt offering. A reparation offering, as well as doing restitution to the person that I have wronged. And so we see joined together in this ritual, this ceremonial offering, is joined together with a heart that has been convicted of sin and which is now responding to God in contrition with a desire for restitution and reparation. This sacrifice would have been brought when someone needs to make reparation or restitution for sin because they understand that sin is not just against another individual, but sin is against God as well. What is it David said when he was convicted regarding his sin with Bathsheba? He had taken another man's wife. He had murdered her husband. I mean, you just... We think, okay, Bathsheba, well, adultery. Well, yeah, adultery and murder. And then David spent a year after that just letting that sin linger. And as we know, sin is not isolated. One sin leads to other sins, lead to other sins. So if we wanted to sit down and you know, do it, we could probably make a list of a whole bunch of sins to add to adultery and murder. But finally, by God's grace, He brings David to repentance. And David sits down and writes Psalm 51. And though if we were going to sit down and describe David's sin, we'd say, well, he sinned against Bathsheba, and he sinned against Bathsheba's husband, and broaden out the scope. He sinned against his army because he's not the one who led them out to battle. He stayed home while he sent them out. and He sinned against a whole bunch of people. He sinned against the men that he commanded to you know, throw Bathsheba's husband into the battle so that he would get killed there. He sinned against a lot of people. But you know what he says in Psalm 51? Lord, against you only have I sinned. And I said, What? I mean, I can understand, yes, you sinned against the Lord, but against the Lord only? And I think what David's saying is, everybody else I've sinned against, well, they're kind of like me. They're sinners too. But my sin against you, Lord, is unique. 
because you, you have no sin. In sinning against you, I sin like I never sin against anyone else. Against you only have I sinned. And so because of his sin, which has taken place on kind of a horizontal plane, David eventually comes to understand, yeah, there's a vertical issue I need to deal with as well. And that's what's happening in these sacrifices. A man may have sinned against his neighbor, but he's also sinned against God. And so here comes the sacrifice. Now there are a number of things that we need to say about this great passage this morning. And the first is simply this, and it's coming back to what we discussed at the very beginning of the message this morning. The Lord repeats these things for a reason. We've been seeing the Lord repeating things over and over all through the first seven chapters of Leviticus. The same sacrifices being described, the same actions being commanded, the same assurances given. Look through these first five verses of this passage with me. Notice again that this offering is to be given in the same place where the burnt offering is slain. This offering's blood is to be sprinkled around on the altar. The fat of the, and the entrails of this offering are to be burned up in smoke on the altar. In all of these ways, the worshiper is assured that God has accepted his offering. Now, we have already seen every aspect of this before. Why is it all being repeated? Let me give you a few suggestions. First of all, the Lord is a very good teacher. And one very good way of teaching is through repetition. Now in our modern day, among in, you know, in pedagogical circles, repetition gets a bum rap. Right? But repetition teaches. The more you hear something, the more you do something, the more it gets ingrained in you. And the Lord is repeating Himself so that we get the point, we learn it, and then we can't get it out of our minds. It is also a wonderful demonstration of the love of God. God is so concerned that we would be assured of His love that over and over and over He repeats the responsibilities of the priests in these sacrifices which is intended to result in the assurance of the worshiper. When one comes into a right relationship with the Lord, when one is reconciled to Him through forgiveness, which comes through atonement, He desires that His people not waver in instability. He desires that they not be tossed to and fro as a result of fear and immaturity and shifting emotion. This repetition also reminds us of the seriousness of sin, doesn't it? The Lord has to go into this intricate detail in order to instill in His people an understanding of our great need. Our need not only of forgiveness, 
but our need for reconciliation. We need to be reconciled to God and to those whom we have wronged or who have wronged us. And this is so important that God repeats Himself over and over and over again. But finally, it points us to Christ. By repeating these things over and over and over, we are pointed to the unique ways in which Jesus Himself fulfills all of these rituals, all of these sacrifices, all of these ceremonies. And so the Lord repeats these requirements to the priests on purpose because He's a good teacher. And the Lord repeats these things in order to draw our attention to His great love. And the Lord repeats these things in order to remind us of the seriousness of sin. And He repeats these things in order to point us to Jesus. Here's another thing I'd like you to think about this morning. And I wonder if you've ever thought about this. We tend not to think of joy in the context of Old Testament worship. We think of law. We think of obligation. We think of formal ritual. But rarely, I think, do we see the joy in all these things. And yet, whenever there is conviction of sin and atonement and reconciliation and the assurance of pardoning grace, there must of necessity be joy. Listen to these comments from Horatius Bonar on this particular passage. He says, None but a heavy-laden sinner could relish this never-varying exhibition of blood to the eye of the worshiper. The pilgrims to Zion in later days must often, as they journeyed through the valley of Becca, have wondered what they were going to see and hear in the courts of the Lord's house, where the worshipers were singing, How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs and even yearns for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God, even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, how blessed are those who dwell in your house. And when they arrived at that house, they saw in those courts blood. Blood on the altar. Blood in the bowls of the altar. Blood on its four horns. Blood on its sides. Blood on the ground. Blood meeting the eye at every turn. No one, Bonar says, no one but a deeply convicted soul, no one but a soul really alive to the guilt of a broken law, could enter into that song and cry with the worshipers, How lovely are your tabernacles, O Lord. What Bonar is trying to get you to picture is this 
discordant view of what's going on there in the temple. Sacrifices are being offered. Animals are being slain. Blood is everywhere. And yet the worshipers who come into the tabernacle are singing about joy. Blood and conviction of sin. And they cry out, How lovely are Your tabernacles, O Lord. Every aspect of redemption is wrapped up in a bow of joy. This again points to the experiential aspects of the Old Testament ceremonial religion. And if that were the case with the Old Covenant religion, how much more for those of us who gather on the Lord's Day under the New Covenant, remembering the ultimate sacrifice which was made for sin, actually accomplishing atonement, the death of Christ on the cross, and then as proof that Christ had done what He said He came to do, His resurrection from the dead. Let me remind you also, that this passage points to the truth that not only forgiveness is entailed in these ceremonial rituals. This offering being described here in Leviticus 7 was one of the most significant offerings for the spiritual life of the worshiper. Its performance being in itself evidence of true repentance. And we read through this and we see something that seems formal and ritualistic, but they are in reality a reflection of the heart of a worshiper and the desire to live a life of moral holiness to the glory of God as a result of the fact that his sin has been forgiven. The guilty person so moved to bring this sacrifice would also be moved to repay what he had taken from another. Even though reparation would cost him perhaps more than what was taken. Sometimes much more. And in this we see the moral holiness that is required among the ceremonial act of holiness in the Old Testament. And we're also reminded again in this passage that these ritual acts that are described in such intricate detail in these first chapters of Leviticus are secondary to the supreme fact of death. Animals died. Their blood was shed. That's the focal point of all of this. And so repeatedly, the point is made, death for sin. Death for sin. In this way, it would have been the most familiar and obvious thing for a first century Jew to hear from the lips of the Apostle Paul that the wages of sin is death. And they would have said, yeah, they would have said, well, of course, Paul. We've read Leviticus. We know that the wages of sin is death. 
And so when we come to proclaim the gospel, what are we doing? We're telling people the same thing that these sacrifices told the people of Israel. Sin deserves death. But we have so much more to tell them. Because that to which these sacrifices pointed, the reality of the shadow has come. God sent His Son to take the place of those animal sacrifices. God's sinless Son became both priest and sacrifice. So that when Jesus went to the cross as the sinless Son of God, He gave Himself as the offering. And when He gave Himself as the offering, because He had lived this sinless life, He was able to take away sin. To take the penalty of sin upon Himself for you and for me. So that if we will turn from our sin like Old Testament worshipers, and if we will receive the assurance of God that sacrifice has been made for us in the person of Jesus Christ, if we will give ourselves to Him, then we will have that assurance. Our sin will be forgiven because the penalty has been paid by another. Our sin will be forgiven. It will be cast as far as the east is from the west. And we will be reconciled to the Holy God. Not because of anything we have done but because of what God Himself has done by His unmerited favor, by His grace. This God who so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Jesus, whoever believes in Jesus might never perish, but have everlasting life. Every sacrifice finds its culmination in Jesus. The wages of sin is death. The glory is someone else has paid the wage. And if you will trust in Him, you won't have to. If you refuse that offer, then inevitably you will end up paying that wage yourself. But you don't have to. Turn from your sin. Trust in Christ. And be reconciled to God. Father, thank You. Thank You for grace. Thank You for Your glory. Thank You, Father, for that which You have accomplished for us. And Father, for those who may be here today who have never understood the Gospel before, 
who have always perhaps thought, well, when I die, my good will be weighed against my bad, and if I've done more good than bad, then I'll be permitted into heaven. Father, show them the truth that apart from Jesus, there is no good. There is no righteousness in us. We need the righteousness of Jesus. Father, save today, we ask. In Jesus' name, Amen.